Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. This week, while well, I'm recording this on the 2nd of June, this is the week that begins the annual secular liturgical and cultural celebration of what has come to be known as Pride Month. And right on schedule, I had a question from uh, one of the members of the congregation, which I want to address in today's podcast and give you some thoughts about how to handle this time of year. Uh, here's the question, just edited lightly to remove the names and so on. Uh, with June coming up and more companies adopting Pride Month to try and bring in more profit, how should we as Christians respond with our fiscal responsibilities? Uh, the question is say, you know, we feel that we should, so to speak, hit them in the wallet and refrain from shopping with those companies or supporting them, but we wanted just to think about how far that goes. And do we stop our business entirely or just until they put the flags away and so on and so forth and how carefully should we investigate a company's ideals before we give them our business and so just a reminder if a reminder were needed about what pride month is pride month is portrayed by its uh, proponents and advocates as a celebration of sexual diversity but not the kind of sexual diversity that god has created which he's called good it's uh, lesbian gay transgender uh, queer and so on and so forth LGBTQI+, plus, or the alphabet soup that follows. And the lobby has become uh, increasingly strong in the last uh, decade or so, to the point where pretty much every company, if I, if I was just looking at um, uh, a bunch of company websites for a couple of minutes before recording this, and you, you, you notice that um, companies have now routinely started to adopt the practice of tweaking their logo to include the pride flag as part of their logo you know you see walmart vans driving past and they've got like a new branding on the side with a rainbow flag and one or two fairly uh, well-known examples hit the media recently of clothing stores putting um lgbt affirming clothing lines even for small children in on sale and so on and so forth so there's a whole bunch of uh, questions that arise what should we as christians do as we're uh, seeking to engage wisely and uh, in a godly way with uh, a, an economic marketplace that features uh, economic actors who are not just uh, coming from a different standpoint than us, but are actually setting forth a vision of life which is not only sinful, but actually really destructive, uh, even of the people whom it professes to support and help. And we might, with some uh, justification, uh, be concerned about the impact of this cultural movement on our children and others whom we care for and so on and so forth. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, uh, I want to highlight a few different things just to kind of work through this issue. I have no uh, ambitions to give a totally comprehensive response to all the different uh, ways in, in which Christians should think about this. But I do want to say a number of different things, and I hope it will at least give you some uh, background to how we should think about this Christianly. And also some practical guidelines, a little dose of realism, as well as uh, some uh, practical things that we could at least do. So first thing I want to commend to you is the sermon, which by the time you are hearing this in uh, the week beginning uh, Sunday, the 4th of June, uh, the, by the time you hear this, it will be the sermon that was preached at All Saints on the previous Sunday by Pastor Shaw, who is beginning a new series on the book of Jonah. And he and I have been talking about that book and about the message of it and about the message of the first chapter in particular. And I want to commend to you uh, what he says on Sunday or what by the time you read this he said on Sunday. Uh, because 
there's a temptation, I'm not, not here wanting to um, re-preach the sermon that, that, as I record this, Pastor Shaw hasn't even preached yet, but just to uh, recall briefly um, the substance of, of that message, there is a temptation to think of a response entirely in terms of this is a worldview that we're opposed to, we must fight against it, leading to a degree of hostility to those people who are propounding it. And of course, there is biblical grounds for that response. Uh, there are Psalms written specifically for the purpose of giving us words to say when we're lost for words in prayer about what should we say concerning those who have made themselves enemies of the living God and of his people by advocating such destructive and sinful lifestyles. Of course, that kind of outrage and even anger is, has a place in a Christian response to cultural movements such as this. But Pastor Shaw has rightly noted that the book of Jonah calls attention to another element of our response, which at least ought to feature in the uh, emotional and psychological and prayer profile of how we think about the people who are involved in uh, gay pride, or it's just called Pride Month now, isn't it? Because it's much broader than just the, the gay movement. And that is compassion, pity, a desire to see people uh, saved. The, the Lord doesn't want people to perish. He'd much rather that they came to repentance. And the book of Jonah, above all else, is given to us to highlight the Lord's compassion, even for uh, sinful and wicked people whose sin and evil has reached ruinous and destructive uh, heights. So I do want to commend to you that sermon. If you've not heard it, please go back. Uh, please do go and listen to it. If you if you were around on Sunday, if you're at All Saints, you would have heard it. Uh, you might want to go and think about it again or listen to it again, because whatever we say about a response which is designed to oppose this movement as a, as a whole, I think particularly when we're thinking about individual people whom we might have relational and personal con uh, contact with, it becomes supremely important to make sure that we combine that uh, uh, hostility um, that uh, re responsive opposition to those who are hostile to us with a genuine appeal to repentance and to people to experience the compassion and grace of God and to be transformed by confessing their sin and repenting of it and turning to Christ. So that's the first thing. Go and listen to Pastor Shaw's sermon again or just reflect on it if you've already heard it and consider are there ways in which we have missed that and at least it needs to form part of the temperamental and emotional background that we bring to this question. That's the first thing. All right, second, I want to offer a note of reassurance. Sometimes questions like this one, and uh, this was a couple at church who, who emailed me this question a few days ago. Sometimes questions like this come from a genuine concern that we ourselves might be guilty in some sense of uh, what is sometimes even called guilt by association, being sinfully involved with companies and uh, individuals and organizations that as a massive part of their headline in the public square are propounding such an anti-Christian uh, worldview and way of life. And I want to, do, to give you some reassurance here. Uh, this is a, an ethical question of some complexity, but just to try and simplify a little bit, there is actually no such thing as guilt by association. We don't become guilty merely by the abstract action of being associated with somebody who is doing something sinful. We become guilty by doing things which are themselves sinful. Can you see the difference? 
Uh, sometimes the idea of guilt by association is employed very, very vaguely, so that you know, if you happen to be shopping at Walmart and there's a gay pride flag, which there will be somewhere, and, and uh, a clothing somewhere in their stores, somewhere in the country, designed to uh, propound that message even uh, for small children, um, you might feel or might be accused of being guilty by associating somehow with them. And I want to say the mere act of associating with somebody who is sinful does not make you sinful. Otherwise, how could Jesus have associated with people who are sinful? Uh, and so uh, you see this readily um, in the, the implications of this, actually, if you think about how modern economies work. Um, uh, you, let's suppose that you found a business where it's Christian-owned and, and somebody who shared entirely your values, and you, you thought, well, I can, I can shop with them, um, and I can buy my food from them. You think, that's great. Well, that person then uh, banks with an organization, which might also be, they might have chosen a kind of conservative and Christian bank to uh, conduct their fin financial dealings with. But that bank is um, invested in a whole portfolio of things, directly and indirectly, and at some point down the a massively interconnected chain of how everyone spends their money on different things and invests it in different places. Somehow that, that money which you pay to that business at some point is finding its way into everything from Chinese government bonds to um, the most woke and LGBTQ XYZ aware companies that are seeking actively to oppose the gospel and to propound a very destructive ideological message throughout the society which we love. So, in other words, we cannot sequester ourselves entirely from, the, uh, ec from economic involvement in uh, businesses and the lives of individuals who are behaving sinfully. And we're not guilty for failing to sequester ourselves from such activity. So where does this idea of guilt by association come from? It does come from the biblical idea that it is possible to sin by participating in or facilitating or enabling somebody else to sin. So just to give you a couple of uh, other um, points on this spectrum, there's, it's a very different thing to go and spend $50 on groceries at a Christian store, Christian-owned store, which... Um, uh, eventually, somewhere down the line, that money ends up invested in places that you'd rather it weren't. It's a very different thing than to uh, go and give money directly to an organisation that you know actively supports those toxic and ungodly ideologies. And really what's happening is there's a spectrum or a series of spectra between those two um, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum, if you like, where uh, the degree of involvement that we have with... Uh, people who are acting in an ungodly way varies along that spectrum. And the reality is uh, we, are not, we are not facilitating in any meaningful way or participating in any meaningful way with somebody's sinful actions merely by even shopping at a place like Walmart. It doesn't really make a difference. It's not something whereby we incur guilt because... If it weren't for us, they couldn't do what they're doing. Now, imagine, imagine the limiting situation. Imagine if there were just two organisations in a small town and you're the one responsible for deciding where uh, the money gets spent 
and you could divert the spending to a an organization that's run and owned and conducted along Christian lines or along non-Christian lines with the consequence that one of them would succeed and one of them would fail. Well, then your involvement in, because of your influence over the outcomes there, would be more significant. But actually, our participation is so small and so limited, and more, and more importantly, so remote from the actual sinful actions that other people are committing, that we're not responsible morally for doing anything wrong, even though somewhere down the chain somebody else is doing something wrong. Um, another way to look at this, again, is just to go back to the, the massive interconnectedness of our economy and to recognise, and not just our economy, but the whole way that we live in relationship with each other, and to realise that almost everything we do somehow indirectly facilitates somebody else sinning, but we're not morally culpable for that sin. Where we would be morally culpable would be if we uh, knowingly and willingly uh, encouraged somebody else to act sinfully, or if we knowingly and willingly enabled somebody else to act sinfully when they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Those kinds of highly proximate and highly determinative ways of being involved in other people's sin do incur guilt. But actually, in reality, when you go to Walmart or you go to some other store and you buy stuff we are so far removed from the sinful actions that are taking place somewhere down the chain and our contribution to those things is so small that we don't thereby become guilty for facilitating or encouraging other people to sin. Now, I do want to say that that, that, whole, ethical, um, sub, that whole area of Christian ethics, uh, participation in evil, is actually one of the most complicated subdomains of Christian ethical reflection that I've come across. And when I teach ethics, I, I, I teach it by unfolding a series of uh, meta-ethical principles, so-called so, um, tools for analysing ethical problems. And we go through about two dozen different tools of it gradually increasing complexity before we get to that set of distinctions necessary to understand the question of participation in evil that's committed by the people. Um, the reason I mentioned that is just to highlight this is complicated, but I do want to reassure you, I don't think you're sinning by going to Walmart. I don't think you're sinning. I don't think you need to feel guilty if you have a bank account at JP Morgan, come to them in a few minutes' time. That said, let me just say thirdly, um, just some practical things. Look, uh, if you had a choice, right? If you had a choice uh, about whether to go to the woke hardware store that's got um, gay pride flags everywhere or the local hardware store where you know the owner and he's a, a decent guy and a Christian man and uh, works hard and um, is trying to protect his employees from all the craziness in the commercial workspace at the present time and you could get the same stuff from them both perhaps around about the same cost or even paying slightly more for it at the Christian um, owned outlet well why wouldn't you do so actually I've tried doing that I've um uh, since uh, coming here two or three years ago, um, I've had to do a fair amount of uh, DIY and other projects on our home, and um, I've tried other local hardware stores rather than the, the big box stores, which have a tragically justified reputation for um, all these kinds of crazy ideologies. And sometimes it's possible to do that. I think if you're able to do that, that's great. I don't want you to feel guilty if you're not able to. If you're living you know, um, 
in a somewhat rural location or even in an urban location and you can drive five minutes to Walmart or three hours to some Christian-owned grocery store that only stocks 1% of the number of products, you're not morally required to make that drive every week. That's what I want to reassure you. But actually, of course, if we had a choice and if it were possible, then to encourage businesses, uh, financial institutions, other service providers with our custom, if they are seeking to operate in a godly or more uh, Christian way, I think that's a great thing to do. It's a small thing, but it's a great thing to do. Um, the uh, example I wanted to set before you, I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, JP Morgan. Uh, this is an example of the kind of way that some slightly larger scale initiatives, I say slightly larger scale, it's a lot larger scale than we can do, but on the overall scheme, it's still pretty small. Some slightly larger scale initiatives may be helpful in the uh, medium term and longer term and may actually point the way for other possible avenues for us to be uh, involved more actively as Christians in seeking to encourage uh, a more a godly Christian marketplace. So let me just uh, tell you that the, the news story I have in mind, you may have seen, I think it was a couple of months ago, back in March, uh, there are a number of stories emerged which claimed that JP Morgan, which I think is the largest bank in the world, it's certainly one of the largest and probably the largest in America, $400 billion market capitalization, huge bank. There were a number of stories that emerged where conservative and Christian individuals and organizations, including some civil officials of some seniority, state officials and um, attorney generals, I think, attorneys general, sorry, um, had had their accounts uh, blocked or frozen or basically they'd been debanked because of um, activities that had involved giving money to conservative or Christian uh, organizations. And this story hit the press in a, uh, a number of different forms with a number of different allegations, which were all denied by JP Morgan. And so one uh, significant shareholder in JP Morgan, uh, a man by the name of David Barnson, uh, who owns uh, a capital management company, the Barnson Group, which manages about $4 billion of client assets. He has a sizable position as part of his professional life in JP Morgan. And he's a, so as a shareholder, uh, he lodged a, uh, what's the word, a motion to be held at their annual shareholder meeting, which took place a couple of weeks ago. Now, just in case you think you recognize the name David Barnson, uh, Bar David Barnson is actually the son of Greg Barnson, who some of you will have come across, a Christian theologian, reformed theologian, um, uh, David is a Christian, and uh, he lodged this motion, uh, and the motion was to uh, investigate whether J.P. Morgan had been guilty of uh, debanking conservative and Christian, uh, or anybody for ideological reasons, uh, among their customers. Uh, and you can see this is part of the uh, background to the uh, Pride Month uh, discussion because what it amounts to is uh, a, a scenario in which uh, Christian and conservative ideologies are being systematically disfavored and progressive and ungodly ideologies are being systematically favored in the commercial sphere. So it's kind of related issue. What's really fascinating is what happened. Um, so David Barnson lodges this uh, request to have a motion heard at the annual shareholder meeting 
and the board refused to even put the motion before the shareholders. So David appealed to the Securities and Exchange Commission without much hope of winning, but he actually won. The SEC said, no, this, this motion has to be heard. So it was heard at the meeting. David got to give like a three-minute speech, uh, and the, the motion obviously failed. Uh, because the board opposed it and enough other shareholders opposed it. Just to put things in perspective, I th I, I, I'm looking at the uh, portfolio size. I'm guessing that the Barnton Group probably has about $100 million in assets uh, uh, in, in JP Morgan shares out of $400 billion uh, capitalization. So it's 0.025% or something. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of that massive company. But it was enough to get this story into the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and other mainstream media outlets. So even though the motion failed, so there's not going to be some investigation internally within JP Morgan to dis discover whether Christians and conservatives have been dis systematically disfavored, you can bet that Jamie Dimon, the CEO, is now rapping on the knuckles anybody who has acted in that way. And it was probably just local activist branch managers who just... Uh, saw it as their role to take a stand against what they regard as these evil Christians or these evil conservatives um, who are among their customers. Uh, it, it, in other words, what, what happened is that just this small shareholding, $100 million small shareholding, in a massive company has been enough to do something to shake the landscape a little bit, because the last thing that the board of J.P. Morgan wants is to be constantly in the conservative and Christian news media for being the bank that's opposed to Christians and conservatives. They just want to do banking, mostly. And that highlights uh, another couple of issues. Firstly, um, it is possible, even for small, relatively small, uh, groups of people, small shareholders, to have a an impact which is uh, surprisingly large, provided they do it in a kind of sane and meaningful and thoughtful way. Uh, there weren't these wild accusations being thrown around by the Barnston Group or by David himself against J.P. Morgan. It was just a this is how this is the process that's supposed to be in place, and the company J.P. Morgan was required to respond to it. What that also indicates, secondly, is that um, a lot of the uh, gay pride or pride month uh, merchandise and branding and trumpeting on social media by many 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 of these companies is really it amounts to cowardly virtue signaling it's not necessarily the case that everybody who works at levi's or everybody who works at walmart is 100 percent bought into the ideology of the trans movement or the LGBTQ movement. It's just that they are living in fear, frankly, and being reactionary. And the um, LGBTQ lobby has been very, very aggressive in recent years, and they don't want to be the, the odd one out. And so there's just this virtue signaling kind of um, scrambling to the, the bottom, so to speak, to try to um, make sure that they're not the company that gets called out for failing to be woke enough or failing to be pro-trans enough or failing to be activist enough. Uh, in reality, what the executives of many, not all, but many of these companies would like to do is just get back to business. And so if there's enough of a clear-headed Christian or even just broadly conservative response to 
some of the craziness, as long as it's not uh, uh, threatening the same kind of, uh, in some cases, illegal, uh, but certainly violent and uh, counterproductive consequences that some uh, of our critics would threaten. If there's enough of that, it's perfectly possible that the needle might start moving the other way. And indeed, maybe that's even starting to happen. Now, just one more thought on that. Uh, I want to draw your attention to what have I got here. Um, I, I looked up the, um, the colors in the new pride flag. You've noticed that this flag has been evolving over the last few years. And there, it used to be like just a rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and indigo. There was a pink bit at one point, but apparently that was, initially that was uh, a kind of bright pink bit was was uh, included, but then that was removed uh, allegedly because the color was too hard to come by for um, fabric manufacturers or something like that. But anyway, and what you will have noticed is that there's uh, a bunch of new versions of the flag which have a whole bunch of new colors, so black and brown and blue and pink and white. The pink has made its way back in, but it's a sort of soft pink this time. Now, what's going on here? You can see very easily what's going on here. If you just uh, try and investigate for two minutes what these colors are supposed to mean. The original gay pride movement has already been hijacked by a bunch of these other multiplying alphabet soup identities. And that multiplication is going on as the broader critical social justice movement seeks to take the... Uh, stage that has been carved out by 20 years ago or more um, the gay pride movement with the original flag in fact it's much older than that isn't it Harvey Milk and so on with the original flag now uh, what's really happening here is the splintering the internal splintering of all these identitarian critical social justice based movements is fascinating and really quite tragic to see this uh, it's most clear, I think, in the way that uh, feminism, old school, second generation, uh, sorry, second wave, Germaine Greer style feminism has gone from being cutting edge in the uh, late 20th century to now being the object of the harshest criticism and no platforming from the critical social justice movement. Germaine Greer has been no platformed at British universities and elsewhere. So what's happening here is um, these, these, the, as the movement, the critical social justice movement, grows and seeks to bring in or is actually being hijacked by more different identitarian claims, its coherence is rapidly diminishing. And one of the perspectives that we ought to bear in mind as we're thinking about this is the long-term perspective within which this will be just seen as another anti-Christian, un-Christian blip on the gradual progress of history whereby Christ is subduing the nations of the world and Christ is uh, causing his kingdom to expand and the gospel is growing and more and more people are being drawn to faith in him with the usual ups and downs throughout history, ups and downs sometimes lasting decades or generations or more. But what we shouldn't think is, goodness, we're on the back foot all the time. No, we're on the front foot all the time. And the gates of hell will not stand against the growth of the church. And the gates are defensive fortifications. It is the secular, ungodly, unbelieving world that's on the back foot, not us. And one of the ways in which this particular victory is likely to be won, probably in a couple of generations' time, but maybe sooner than that, is by the complete internal implosion of this 
incoherent set of ideologies which are increasingly fighting against each other. So the fact that the red, yellow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo has now been complemented, so to speak, by black, brown, blue, pink and white. We'll have another bunch of colours next year. It'll just keep growing, keep growing and keep splintering and keep splintering. And in that context, one of the most critical things we need to remember is we're in this for the long haul. We are seeking to play our tiny, tiny part in the progress of the growth of a kingdom which will take a thousand generations at least for God to show his kindness to the people whom he's made. And we haven't had a thousand generations since Pentecost yet, so we're nowhere near the point of the end game. We want to be in this for the long haul, not panicking over short-term ups and downs, even if those quote-unquote short-term ups and downs take the rest of most of our lives. We need a sense of confidence in building for the long term and in continuing to live faithfully and to do those things which will cause the gospel to flourish and our families and children and grandchildren and our churches to flourish for many generations to come, which is just the steady, daily faithfulness and godliness and living uh, godly lives and seeking to welcome people, including people who have been so confused by this ideology, to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. On which note, I think that's enough. I hope that's been somewhat helpful in giving you some thoughts about how to respond to this movement. And uh, if you have any other questions about it, obviously give me a shout. By the time you hear this, we will have had Pastor Shaw's sermon and possibly a discussion in forum about all that as well. And I hope that will have been helpful. And all three of us, your pastors, uh, Pastor Neil, Pastor Shaw, and myself, are always here if you want to talk. And if you want to ask any questions specifically of me for inclusion on the podcast, give me a shout, send me an email. Otherwise, God bless and See you next time. Bye for now.